Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From the Ringer Podcast Network, listen to Gamblers Season 2 on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. I'm Tara Palmieri, and I'm the senior political correspondent at Puck. And this is Somebody's Gotta Win. Everywhere I go, people ask me, why won't a credible Democrat challenge Joe Biden? After all, he's underwater in the polls. Two-thirds of Americans say he's too old. He's tied nationally with Donald Trump in the polls. And voters are saying to the party they want more options. It's opening the door for perhaps third-party candidates who might actually take some of his voter share. If someone was going to rise up and take on Joe Biden, it probably should have happened already. But November 1 would be the latest. And there's a real bench of Democrats who could do this. Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, Raphael Warnick of Atlanta, and even J.B. Pritzker of Illinois. But it would be pretty risky. Nobody wants to do it because they don't want to blow their chances in 2028. But they might be misguided. You know, there's no saying that 2028 is going to be an easy race to the nomination. There might be as many as 10, 15 players on the bench, and it could be messy. 2024 could actually be better. You get the chance to rise up and take on a weak candidate. But there are even more reasons why they're not willing to do it. And it's one of the biggest background conversations in Washington, D.C. To talk about all of this, I brought in NBC's political reporter, John Allen. John, why doesn't anyone have the balls to jump in the ring and challenge Joe Biden? At this point, Tara, there seems to be a uh, an inverse relationship between the willingness of anyone to get into the race and the seriousness with which they could run a race against Biden. That is to say, um, those who might be able to challenge him most effectively are also the ones uh, who are most reluctant to do so uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, the, I think the first one... Uh, is the logistical reason, which is that it's very difficult to get on the ballot at this point 
uh, in all the states that you need to get in the ballot to, to really make a good primary challenge. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I, there's tremendous fear uh, within the Democratic Party of being the person who gets blamed for electing Donald Trump a second time. Um, so if you are, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom or J.B. Pritzker, uh, the governor of Illinois, or any of the other Democrats that get mentioned with some frequency, uh, you know, you look at uh, the possibility that you run a divisive campaign, uh, kind of like Teddy Kennedy's run against uh, Jimmy Carter in 1980, and uh, conclude that there is a reasonably good chance that even if you w- whether you win the nomination or lose the nomination, that you may be seen as uh, having divided the party in a way. Uh, that makes it easier for Trump to walk back in the White House. And, uh, you know, that's not a legacy that many Democrats would be, uh, you know, would be eager to have. It's not just about this election, though, for these politicians. I mean, they are always thinking about their own opportunities down the line. And I think they're probably also positioning themselves for 2028, right? And if you jump in now, then you're pretty much dead to the party by 2028. That's what I've been told um, from people close to those various candidates. Like, if we got in there and challenged a very weak president, maybe you could win. But what might happen is that the entire party apparatus comes after you. You've got, like, Hillary Clinton, the Obamas, every, you know, state party chair, governor, putting out statements against you and you become a pariah in the party and maybe you pull. Like, I mean, RFK Jr. is getting like 15 points nationally, at least at one point. And to me, that's just a sign that, you know, voters are saying we want options. We want someone else. He's not even, you know, some would say he's not even really a Democrat. Um, But it, it certainly shows you that there's a hunger among the electorate for someone else, right? Um, But these... These candidates, they just, they're afraid of what the party's going to do to them, right? I mean, the party right now, because the DNC and the and the White House are so close to each other. I mean, the DNC are basically, they're basically running the Biden re-election campaign. Like, all the party poobahs are in for Biden, right? There's no way they're going to say, hey, it's time to step down. Yeah, not only are they in for Biden, I mean, you know, obviously the DNC changed its rules, so they put South Carolina first. That's a huge advantage to Biden. I think most folks will remember that South Carolina is where he turned his campaign around. Uh, in 2020, uh, he was, you know, basically losing all the primary contests until then and uh, turned it around uh, on the strength of huge support within the African-American community in South Carolina. So uh, the DNC has put South Carolina first, obviously, at the behest of the White House. That's another one of those sort of logistical challenges. But when you talk about 2028, yes, absolutely. Like these folks are thinking about what comes next and they're they looking at an open seat in 2028 which is a lot more inviting uh, than trying to defeat two presidents, uh, to defeat Joe Biden in a primary and Donald Trump in a general election. Uh, that feat is uh, really a, you know, a monumental task that these folks would be looking at. We're watching Ron DeSantis try to do that on the Republican side right now and falling flat on his face. So if you're a Democratic uh, candidate who's thinking about your future and you feel like it might be more than just the next three or four years, that you'll still be young enough to run, uh, still be in good enough shape to run, perhaps be able to build yourself over the next few years. 2028 is much, much more inviting. Now, of course, you're looking also at, uh, you know, if if Biden wins re-election, you're looking at uh, his vice president, Kamala Harris, perhaps uh, having a little bit of an inside track. But, you know, her popularity ratings aren't very high. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that. You would, that, expect, you would yeah. expect a fully open and competitive field on the Democratic side in 2028. And no matter who wins the presidency, if it's Biden versus Trump, 
the the White House itself will be, a, you know, an open seat, basically a general election without an incumbent. Yeah, I, I don't know. I might I might challenge that. I mean, when you go into 2028, you're right. It's an open seat, but it could also be a primary with like 20 people. The bench will be really big. Whereas 2024, you're only up against one guy who's very weak, who's, you know, his poll numbers are below water. Two thirds of the country thinks he's too old to run. You could come out of this victorious too. Whereas in 2028, you're up against, you know, 10, 15 people, some hot new young governors who have track records that maybe the American public doesn't know quite yet. You're in for a long, brutal primary. I don't know. I don't, I'm not totally sure that 2028 is promised to any of them. Oh, I totally agree with you. I I don't think it's promised to any of them, but I do think that when they're making that calculation and they look at the two possible races, 2028 is more inviting than 2024. I'm not sure that I even agree that it would be easier to win in 2028 than 2024 for any of these individual candidates. Uh, To your point, Joe Biden is not somebody who is um, you know, beloved by all of the Democratic uh, voters. You know, there's a significant share of the Democratic Party that thinks uh, that he's too old or thinks that he shouldn't be the nominee for another reason. So, uh, yeah, the opportunity is there, but the risk is huge. The other thing, too, is like power is not given. It's taken. And if you come in there and you and you kill the king and you're the winner, I mean, that's that's something. You know what I mean? And obviously people are screaming at Washington that they want an option. And I think it makes people angry when they feel like they're not getting an option. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about Republicans. I'm talking about Democrats who feel like we don't want this person to be our candidate. And they're furious that they're not getting a primary. And like, what what are Democrats so scared of about having a primary? Well, first of all, Joe Biden and uh, the White House and the Biden campaign and the Democratic National Committee and mostly the state party committees don't want a challenge for Joe Biden, right? Like they're squarely in his corner. The establishment of the Democratic Party squarely in his corner. Um, And so they're not looking for somebody else to run. Uh, I think that a lot of the voters would like to have more options, uh, but they're not given those unless, you know, one or more of these folks steps up and says, uh, you know, I'm willing to throw caution to the wind. I do think that he's beatable. I do think that beating him in a primary would uh, would make me a strong general election candidate as a, uh, you know, a king slayer or whatever, uh, however you phrase it. Um, you know, all of those are possibilities, but again, it's, it's sort of a mountain to climb and, and, you know, most politicians have some level of, uh, willingness to accept risk. Uh, but most of them have a limit, a pretty strong cap on what their, uh, willingness to accept risk is. Right. So, you know, running for office in the first place is taking a risk. Um, but typically what we see from politicians is they try to plot out the strategies that they think are. Uh, you know, most likely to be the easiest path to the next job. And, um, you know, the conventional wisdom, whether it's right or not, is that uh, that getting into this race is going to be likely be a losing effort um, and certainly going to be a divisive one within the Democratic Party and could, again, end up in the election of Donald Trump. And, I, you know, none of these people want to be the person that's remembered history for uh, electing again, if you, you know, on the Democratic side. I sense regret, though, among like the Democratic Party, like apparatus and establishment that like Biden didn't decide on his own not to run again for re-election. I mean, the the DNC and the White House are so in lockstep that like the people who would be in the, you know, uh, <laughs> the 
the the smoky back rooms making these decisions. They're all together and they're pretty much behind the president. So it's like none of them are going to say to him, like, listen, all the polling and the data says that you're too old. People want an option. We need to have a primary. Do you think that Democrats are just afraid of a primary? Like, is, was that part of it? Or they really just gave Joe Biden the option of whether he wanted to run again? Because I sense that these Democrats are traumatized from prior primaries and that they're also kind of wishing that Biden decided on his own not to run. Well, I mean, he chose, right? Nobody could choose for him whether he's going to run again. So right. he chose to do that. He waited as long as possible, I think, before announcing a campaign, which was an effort to sort of freeze the field to make it more difficult for other people to jump in, right? Like, you know, the, mm-hmm. as they wait to see what happens. So the DNC, it's not surprising, is, um, is you know, aligned with the White House that when, uh, when a party has the White House, its national committee with the DNC or the RNC is an arm, essentially, of the White House, the political arm of the White House. The president chooses the DNC chair. Um, so, you know, th- none of that should be terribly surprising. Yes, I think there is frustration among voters that there's not uh, more of a choice. But I also think that there are uh, any number of Democrats who think that a divisive primary would be uh, detrimental to the party. Um, sometimes a divisive primary is not. In 2008, I think you could argue that uh, dem- the divisive Democratic Party put a lot of interest in the Democratic side um, and put Democrats in a better position to win for 2008 when Obama got nominated and then Clinton came in behind him. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure that the 2016 primary that was divisive between Hillary Clinton and uh, Bernie Sanders was helpful. There's, you know, sort of at least a mixed record on that. Right, because people felt like the party locked it up for Hillary Clinton. And in 2008, you know, this young African-American man, uh, Barack Obama, who nobody thought would win, emerged from the primary victorious. And, you know, isn't a primary like a great opportunity to find new talent and to show who can rise above the rest? That's that's the other thing. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we live in a democratic republic. Yeah, I mean, competition is, political competition is like in our DNA. It's in the DNA of, uh, of our political system. And yet, um, if you are strong enough as an incumbent president, but most of them are strong enough to, to ward off serious competition, then you will do that because, you know, like you said, you have to take power and not only do you have to take power, nobody gives it up easily. Yeah, that's true. Nobody does give it up. I'm starting to sense that there's actual actual anger at the party among Democrats outside of D.C. and some in D.C. that they feel like they're being fed dog food and they're just like, we don't want to eat the dog food. We want something else. And there's a feeling that I think it's going to result in low voter turnout as well. If people aren't excited about Joe Biden, how are you going to get them to go out and vote, right? I think it's going to be hard to determine what constitutes low voter turnout because, uh, you know, in the last election, there was such an increase in voter turnout, right? We saw, uh, I think, the the Democrat, the increase in Democratic participation in 2020 from 2016 was about 21%, right? Like a huge jump in the number of people who voted. Uh, on the Republican side, it was uh, less than that, but it was still a huge increase. So, um I'm not sure what what we would you know what exactly what numbers would constitute uh, low ver- voter turnout. I, I guess I would be shocked if there were fewer voters that showed up this time around. But we're also far, you know a long way out. So uh, right. both campaigns are going to try their best to uh, you know make people angry on their own side and get them to show up. Uh, right. and, that, and that worked pretty well. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, 
the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. In the White House, they're 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 telling concerned, you know, allies, don't worry, abortion and Trump will will turn will get our voters to turn out. Don't worry. But I think they notice that there's softness around African Americans, Hispanics, Latinos, uh, younger voters that they're just they're just not feeling the Biden buzz. I mean, if you're a Democrat right now and you're not worried about the 2020 election, you're not worried about Joe Biden standing. You're not paying attention. Um, that's not to say that uh, Donald Trump is about to cruise back into the White House, but just look at the polling, you know, most national polls in a head to head Trump and Biden are even usually what we've seen in recent elections is even when the Democrat wins, they're up uh, at least a few points in the national polls. So like right now, it looks like, uh, you know, Trump is a, in a better position than, uh, you know, better position than he was, uh, say, on Election Day in 2020. Um, and, you know, if you look at the, the other polling, and this I think speaks to your point at the dissatisfaction with the parties, uh, if you uh, include uh, third party candidates, if you include in the testing uh, Libertarian Party, Green Party, no labels, uh, you know, Cornell West, who's uh, running for president, if you include all of them, uh, you know, in the, in the last NBC poll, which is about, you know, a week old or so. Uh, what we saw was uh, Trump up 39 percent to 36 percent over Biden. Democrats yeah. should be worried about their standing. The question is, I think a multiple, I think there are multiple questions. Number one, um, is there anything that they could do to change course? So to your point, would anybody jump in at this late date, and try to get into a primary fight with Biden? Uh, I think the answer is that unlikely, uh, very unlikely. Uh, and then the other thing is what, if Biden is the democratic nominee, what can he do to change his trajectory? Um, and you're right. He is not energizing or inspiring uh, all of the Democrats across the country to be excited about him. Um, and you know, what we've seen, uh, just recently he spoke in Arizona. He's again, making the argument that democracy is on the ballot. He's trying to, uh, and making an argument about what he calls the extreme MAGA Republicans. He's trying to agitate the base, if not for him against Donald Trump and against, 
uh, the elements of the Republican Party that Democrats uh, find particularly objectionable. Right. I sense that people are just starting to feel like, oh, God, this is the Democratic Party picking the candidates again. They're just trying to hold on to power. The Biden world just wants to hold on to power. They're not doing what's best for the country. Um, And I think that sentiment is going to keep growing. But there is some weird, like, fantasy wish casting going around D.C. that I've heard. I just want to break it down for you. I heard it for the first time, actually, yesterday, this idea that at the convention in Chicago, at the DNC convention, Biden would announce that he's not running again and let it be a delegate floor fight for who the next nominee is. I mean, what what are the chances that would ever happen? Well, I mean, I think to your point about the idea of the party picking, I mean, you know, when... uh, (laughs) That, uh, that would be the ultimate case of the party picking, right? I mean, yes. literally the insiders picking somebody in a smoke-filled room, as opposed to, um, you know, a Democratic Party election, you know, uh, a primary election or any other election where the, the members of the party, not, not, the, uh, not the insiders, but the people who are registered to vote as, as Democrats right. are the ones who choose somebody. I mean, uh, you know, to the extent that the American public is uh, is disgusted with both parties, to the extent that the American public believes that the parties don't serve the public interest, to the extent that they believe uh, that all of these decisions are made by insiders and uh, everything is rigged, um, that would only fulfill and and, and fuel those views. Um, so I, I, I cannot see that scenario. Um, you know, I guess it's possible. I just I think it's very hard to see that happening. Also, I think it's important to remember, and people forget this so much, Joe Biden either ran for president or thought about running for president in basically every election from the time he turned 35 until the time he won the presidency. This is not somebody... Yeah, from the time he was eligible. Right. So, like, I mean, literally, like, the 1980 election, the 84 election he was looking at, 1988, he ran, 92, you know, like, he looked at it, 96... Uh, you know, by, uh, uh, Bill Clinton was an incumbent, so he didn't run. Uh, he was vice president for Obama, so he didn't run then, but he ran in 2008. He thought about running in 2016 and decided not to at the last minute. He kept running for president every time for like, you know, basically a period of 40 years. This is not somebody who doesn't want to be president, or let me put it the other way. This is somebody who spent his entire life trying to be president of the United States. I cannot see a, a scenario in which he's like, I'm just going to give this up. Yeah. But at some point, you got to think about the, the party over your own ambitions. Sorry, at some point, you need to think about the country over your own ambitions. I'm not sure that that's consistent with the history of American presidential candidates. That's right? true. That, that, that they put the country over Anointed their own Anointed by God. They're like popes, honestly, the way they think about it. <laughs> I mean, the, the biggest, like the biggest, uh, the biggest common denominator among all the people who run for president is that they have egos that would put Napoleon to shame, right? So like, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Look, they're able to justify it, right, in their own minds, that they believe that they're the best person to run the country. And so, therefore, what they're doing by promoting themselves, by seeking the presidency, by holding the presidency, is doing the best thing for the country. They, they believe that those and they believe that those things are not uh, at odds with each other, but but in, in sync with each other, in alignment w- with each other, that what they do that is good for them is, in fact, good for the country. And if you can, you know, if you can believe that, uh, and and believe that it's always true, you know, maybe you should run for president. <laughs> Not you personally, Tara. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to see your campaign. I think it'd be f- incredible fun on the debate stage. In fact, oh, thanks. maybe you should do like a fake debate on the, on the podcast sometime. Okay. Uh, but like, 
I, I think you'd be fun to watch, but I'm not saying you should run for president. You could be my campaign manager, right? Would that be, <laughs> or you could be my running mate. Fuck it. I, <laughs> I, I, would not, I, I do not seek nor would I accept any party's nomination for uh, president or vice president of the United States. But oh, what would our party be called? Because we wouldn't, we wouldn't run as Democrats or Republicans. Our party would be called the party because we'd have the best freaking the party. The party, the freaking party. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I'll, I'll think about this one. I just got to figure out who our donors are. <laughs> <laughs> We're just... Um, uh, money's overrated in politics these days. Is it? Yeah. I think it is. It's not Just it's run not a media campaign. Anymore. We could yeah, just run probably. it all from a podcast studio. I, I think that's the future, for better or worse. Got it. Well, until then, I'll be thinking really hard about my campaign platform. Thanks so much, John, for coming on the pod. This has been another episode of Somebody's Gotta Win. I'll be back on Thursday with another pod. If you actually want to put a face to the voice, though, I played myself on Billions. The episode dropped on Sunday, October 1st. It's episode eight of the final season where Damian Lewis makes a comeback and I make a cameo as myself, Tara Palmieri, Puck News reporter, spying on a certain politician who wants to run for president. If you want more of my written work, though, sign up for my newsletter, The Best and the Brightest, at puck.news slash Tara Palmieri. The discount code is Tara20 for 20% off. Please rate and share this podcast if you like it and see you on Thursday.